right. Good morning. There we go. Lights. All right. Um, Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, um, as you do. Uh, My name is Chris, uh, pastor at uh, Hollywood Church. Uh, You may have have heard of us uh, a little bit. And uh, this morning, I want to kind of uh, go through the the book of Jonah. It was funny. This morning, I was talking. A friend of mine said to me, he said, man, you're, you're wearing a tie and no one's dead. I'm like, well... I know. I don't wear ties very often, so this is, this is enjoyable for me. And this wide desk thing here, this is great. I usually have a, usually have a music stand. This thing is, I can put everything here. I mean, you could put like, have you seen this thing? You could put like 12 Bibles on this thing. This is great. You can have like all different versions laid out. It's <laughs> tremendous. Got to figure out what I'm going to do with my stuff. All right. So um, let's read Jonah 4, and then, uh, and then we will pray together. Uh, Jonah 4. Beginning in... Verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. He sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that had attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And the ass that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, uh, we come into your presence this morning. God, I ask again, as early this morning, God, that you would... Uh, enable me, Lord, to speak clearly, passionately, God, your word. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word here, God. We pray that you would unite our heart to fear your name, remove our distractions, help us to concentrate upon you. God, we ask that you would satisfy us this morning with your loving kindness. God, we may be glad all the day long, God. We, we long to see you in all of your glory this morning, we long to be convicted and brought in, God, to your presence and to be leaving here this morning with a greater sense of urgency about the mission laid before each of us, God, and a greater sense of joy, God, in the person and work of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this passage uh, in the book of Jonah uh, has been one of the most life-changing passages in my life, personally. Uh, many of the reasons that the Hollywood Church began was because of this passage working in my heart to bring me to where I am today. Um, I feel I very much uh, 
feel much like uh, Jonah himself, actually. Um, I still am to a certain extent. Uh, my background is such that I was delivered and saved out of a background that was uh, pretty distorted. Um, I didn't grow up in church. I had no affiliation with the church. Uh, only way I knew of Jesus Christ was because when I got angry, I said his name. I didn't know that was a real person. Um, that's about the extent of my knowledge of who the gospel, what the gospel was. Um, grew up in a, in a broken home. You know, my dad smoked, dealt, grew his own pot. That was always fun in the backyard. Um, and uh, we, uh, you know, he died two years ago, basically, drug overdose, alcohol, and everything else. Um, so that's what I grew up with. And God delivered me out of that and saved me. And a great story walking into a church and, and uh, you know, hearing the gospel for the first time at age 18. And uh, really, God transformed me, my life from the inside out drastically. Matter of fact, my family thought I was in a cult. <laughs> They're like, he's not, he's not in jail anymore. Um, he's a nice kid. And he, uh, something that's good, but man, he must be part of a cult. Cause we, there was no way to explain it, right? There was no reasonable explanation for why this kid was transformed the way he was. Um, I went to school in New York, and when I was there, God just kind of pulled my heart and gravitated my heart towards the people in an urban environment. I remember we'd have camps every summer, and he would, uh, it seemed like every summer, all the kids who came from the Bronx, all right, all the kids that came from there, they gave them to me. You know, there's some, at the time, about one thirty, about a buck thirty-five is how much I weighed, skinny white kid from Danville, Virginia, farm town, right? And I'm, I'm working with the kids from the Bronx. It was just, it was comical actually to see it. Um, and yet, and yet God gave me a ability to, to talk to them and connect with them and present the gospel to them and work with them in ways I'd never thought possible. And God really just transformed me and really began to call me in that direction. And, um, I, when I left New York and I came to California, I left there because of some uh, theological differences. Uh, I became more uh, what we'd call Reformed or Calvinistic in my, my theology, in which they were not. And so I, I left there to come out here, and I went to Master's Seminary and such. But I remember them telling me, Chris, you go out there. Don't lose your heart for this. You're good at this. This is, a, this is your gift. This is what you should be doing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I left, came here, and sure enough, after about four years of being here and, and learning great things and loving seminary very much, I, um, by the time I left and was done with seminary, my wife and I, we had, uh, had twins at the time. I mean, I left Los Angeles and like threw a grenade over my shoulder, right? I'm just like, blow it up. I don't care. Let it fall off the end of the United States. I'm okay. I'm going, I need to go find a place safe, comfortable, easy. And so I went to Alabama. And, um, <laughs> and so, uh, and it was, I had my own house. I had my own, my, my picket fence going around my house, an acre of land. I had, uh, you know, a very homogenous neighborhood. Everything was very comfortable and safe and nice. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking for my time there. I learned a lot there. God really beat me down in many ways. Um, but it was about two years into that stint there that uh, God really began to stir in my heart, even through the reading of Scripture, um, through uh, books and sermons and things, that God began to just bring my heart back to the surface of where I should be and what I should be doing, what God's called me to. And so, therefore, um, we we came here. We moved, uh, uh, thanks, thanks to Calvary Bible Church and all the support and help, and we began to start uh, Hollywood Church two, a little over two years ago, actually. Um, we found ourselves back here again, and the need has been... Uh, overwhelming. I'm now a church planter, which I never thought I would be, but I'm a church planter. Which is interesting to tell people who know, know nothing about church. Call them, say you're a church planter, and they're trying to figure that thing out. They have no idea. You know, they got a, a horticulture going on. It just doesn't work. Um, and uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm, uh, 
I, I'm a church planter, and I've I found myself now in the midst of this gang of guys that plant churches in urban environments as kind of crazy people. Um, it's kind of similar to the uh, Hurt Locker, you know, guys. It's kind of, you're just kind of crazy to do this kind of stuff, and um, and so so we we began to plant churches, and uh, you know, it's been hard, it's been difficult. Just kind of before I jump in the passage, just trying to give you, they've asked me to kind of share with you some of our story and some of the things that have happened to us and things that have gone on. Um, you know, I have friends of mine now, comrades in the trenches with me, he could say, that uh, planted churches in different areas of the United States. And um, over this past even three months, actually, um, I've had one of my friends um, got a brain tumor. Um, you know, he's got three little kids going through chemotherapy right now. Um, I have another friend who um, whose wife basically lost it and ended up in a psychiatric ward because just the stress was too much. Um, I had another friend... Um, as as, dra- as as traumatic as this is, um, another friend who committed suicide, it's a pastor, a church planter, just couldn't take it anymore and shot himself. Um, had another one just two days ago, a friend of mine that actually um, overdosed on sleeping pills. He was he couldn't sleep at night, was so stressed out, took some sleeping pills, took too many, woke up, it kind of affected his liver, shut it down, and eventually died two days. Um, so you talk about guerrilla warfare. I mean, I, I know anybody here could get up here as, as a missionary, could understand and could give you tons of stories of things that have, they're difficult, but it is hard. And even though we're planting a church over the, over the hill down in Hollywood, it's a different beast in some ways too. But just church planting anywhere is just difficult. Um, as we look at our, our city we're from and where we are, um, I remember when I first got there, I, I had a guy take me around. Hollywood, and they called it the Underbelly Tour. That's what he called it. Uh, it was a like a, a midnight to 2 a.m. tour, right, of Hollywood. <clears throat> Different city. Let me tell you something. After the lights go out, and uh, and so he drives me. He'd been there for 25 years. Started a ministry working with teenagers off the streets, you know. And he took me around and showed me things that I will never forget to this day. Um, and uh, and he he told me when he got there, he drove into Hollywood. hadn't been there in a year. Showed up, and he said uh, he got out of his car and he looked at me and just shook his head. And he's just like, this is just. I don't miss this. He said, this is, it's dark. It's oppressive. He said, just, I said, I can't put my finger on it. I can't give you a Bible verse, but man, it's just, it's just, it's different. Right. And, um, and I, I felt that I feel, I feel that in being there, um, we are, um, um, you know, the city itself is a, a fourth of the population is poor. Los Angeles itself is a human trafficking hub of America. Um, any given night during the summer, kids ages 14 to 24 is about close to 2,000 of them on the streets just walking it, uh, homeless. Uh, over 700 murders last two years. Uh, one just two blocks up from me, they call it the Hannibal Lecter murder, basically. They uh, found a person's body parts in the trash can behind a liquor store and found across the street the apartment complex where the killer was. And they went to his place and found you know body parts in the frying pan and in the blender. Um, yeah, it's just like two blocks up from me, so it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, over 100,000, you, and you heard this earlier, but over 100,000 children are killed last year through abortion in Los Angeles. Over 30,000 kids don't have parents or in a foster home. Less than one half of 1% of the population of Hollywood is, would be considered evangelical in their faith. Um, that's less than one half of 1%. That's, le- that's basically one out of every 200 people you run into. Or put it another way, that's like 100, out, of, out of 200 people, 199 of them are on their way to hell right now. That's heavy. That's heavy. There, there, there's more Christians per capita in China or Asia or Africa than are in Hollywood, okay, if you just put it together that way. The, the thought long ago of, like, you know, let's go to Africa and let's send some missionaries there. Do you know that today they're actually sending them to us? Africa sends missionaries to the United States. Um, 
part of their Anglican church actually sends missionaries to America now. So that, that time is long gone. The need for planting churches and starting churches is here and here's, is here and now is in our urban cities, especially around the country. If you think of the Great Commission, you think of Matthew 28, Jesus said, go make disciples, right? You know how the apostles interpreted that. You look at the book of Acts, they interpret that as go plant churches. That's how they interpreted it. It's like, okay, we're going to go make disciples, let's start some churches. And they did. That's, that's really the method that God put down. When it comes to our, our church and kind of some of the things that have gone on there, I remember the first Sunday we started off, um, very first Sunday, it's like, welcome to Hollywood. Uh, first Sunday, we had a false teacher come in, uh, trying to convert people and bring people to his, his side. Um, I had to kick him out. Um, since then, I've had, we call it the Smallville Freak of the Week thing. We're basically just like a new, there's a new person that comes in every week. Like, who's going to be this week, right? Um, you know, we had a guy coming in basically dressed up as Moses, thought he was channeling Moses, actually, at one point. Um, I had a guy come in. This is, my best, this is my favorite one. He came in, actually, had pastor embroidered on his shirt, uh, walking around telling people he was the pastor. You know, I'm like, get out of here. You know, get it's, it's crazy. Um, I actually had a guy, and I didn't know this at the time, which I'm very thankful I did not. Um, I had a guy at the time, had a gun. Um, he was in our service, had a gun, and uh, he got up in part of the service. And I have, I've actually had a guy in preaching. I've had, I usually music stand. I'm usually on the same level. I had a guy get up, walk around me, right, behind me. And I'm just kind of like going, Lord, please don't have him stab me. I'm like looking, you know, he's like going, he walks, he, literally, he walks around me, goes right, and he sits back down. Like nothing ever happened. Okay, he just wanted to stretch his legs out, right, just kind of give his... Make sure everything's okay from the back, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I had a guy show up with a, with a gun one time. And it, literally that night, he shot and killed somebody that night. I mean, he, I remember in the service, that same guy, I remember him getting up. And I remember his face. And he got up and kind of walked to the back and he started staring at me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is, this is not right. Something's not right. Um, glad he didn't shoot me. But um, we've, had, uh, we've had people, sad enough, walk away from the faith. Um, over the past two years and starting this, um, the seminary didn't prepare me for a lot of the things I've encountered. Um, I had to help people work through death, suicide, murder, drugs, drunkenness, countless addictions, unemployment, poverty, bulimia, anorexia, cutting, abandonment, divorce, miscarriages, abortion, homosexuality, persecution, threats to their lives, abuse, criminality, STDs, rape, and molestation. That's just the name of few. <laughs> Um, I'm just like constantly going, Lord, I am out of my element here. I am a young punk kid who has no idea what he's doing. Um, you, I need help, please. Um, so uh, in terms of our pain as a family, uh, it's, it's been very rough for us. As a matter of fact, my wife's not even here this morning um, as she has her uh, migraine again. Um, she's had, since the two years we've been there, she's had over 200 migraines, about two a week pretty much. Um, we see over 20 different specialist doctors. Um, Sarah has... Um, has suffered in that. My son just randomly six months ago lost his hearing, just left side, just gone. They have no idea why or how. Is it two MRIs, EKG? I mean, um, two MRIs. I get mixed up with all the machines we've been on. Two MRIs, CAT scan. They have no idea why that is. Um, four emergency rooms, vis- emergency room visits, three hospitalizations, and the list goes on. Um, emotionally, just to be honest with you, we battled a lot of depression. Uh, it is just kind of oppressive and dark, and Satan is very much at work, and, and it, 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 I fight depression myself. It seems like every three months I kind of go into this vicious cycle and try to pull myself out and preach the gospel to myself and try to get myself out of that thing. Um, we dealt with depression, fatigue, conflict, sleeplessness, random pain and diseases. I mean, like random. Like I'll show up to the doctor and be like, this happened to me. And they're like, really? We've never heard of that before. I'm like, great. I'm, I'm the one who gets the random sicknesses and diseases. Um, 
This is crazy. Um, honestly, I've wanted to quit probably a dozen times. Um, you know, my wife said to me more than once, is there something else you can do? <laughs> do you feel, I mean, honestly, if it wasn't for the call of God on my life and the compulsion of what God has called me to do, I would, in a heartbeat, be done, <laughs> be done easily. I don't choose pain like this. Um, I mean, it just, it's funny, even legally this past week, I just finished up a court case where I was being sued. Um, I just finished filing paperwork to the IRS because they're auditing me. That's a lot of fun. And then uh, my credit was compromised this week, so I got identity theft going on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Raising kids. Uh, raising kids has been a joy. Uh, we love our kids. We have four of them. Um, we, uh, we actually had, um, we first showed up at Hollywood. We're driving around, and um, Sarah's in the passenger seat, and we're driving around Hollywood. I'm just like, I'm just excited. I'm looking around. I'm seeing need everywhere, right? I'm just excited. I'm like, hey, are I mean, are you excited? And look over, and she looks at me, you know, tears are, are flowing, you know. I'm like, what's the matter? She's like, well, it's not, it's not the city, and it's not like the, the people, it's not any of that. And she's like, her thoughts were just consumed with, how am I going to raise three little kids in the midst of this? Like, how, am I, how are we going to do this? And I said, we can, we'll do this together. We'll do it together. I said, uh, we could do this. I said, so look, here, here's the uh, public library, Hollywood Public Library in Ivar. I'm like, okay, let's go in there. I'm sure they'll, they'll have some ideas of things we can do with the kids while we're here, right? So, I, uh, being the good husband I am, walked in and uh, took my wife, went up to the children's librarian, actually, and, uh, and uh, said, uh, hey, what, what is there, uh, we're moving to Hollywood, what, what are some things to do with, uh, with kids? And, of course, she's, she's looking at me, kind of this blank stare, and her question, her statement was, why are you going to do that? You know, that was her statement. Why are you going to move here with kids? And uh, to which my wife just, you know, I was like, oh, great, you know, this is the children's librarian. And then I asked her, so, what is, so, so what, what is there to do? What is there to do? You know, and she calls over, you know, slash her partner comes over and, uh, and says, uh, what do they do with kids here in Hollywood? Again, this is the children's librarian, right? And she, he goes, um, you know, there's some good tattoo parlors up the street. You probably get some tattoos. At this point, I turn to look at my wife and you know, she's gone. She's already left. Uh, I'm like, oh boy, this will be fun. Um, but it has been a challenge. I mean, we really have. I mean, the looks you get having having four kids in Hollywood is classic. If you ever if you have kids and you want to just have a, a good laugh, just walk around with them in Hollywood. Keep their eyes closed. We just walk around with them, and it's it's good. Um, we've, it's about a five to one ratio of like dogs to kids in Hollywood. So every five dogs you see, there's one kid. Um, I remember walking to the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, right. Uh, I walk in, I have all four of my kids, and by myself, they had a migraine. I was going in, and this guy comes out, and he just, you know, does this count? One, two, three, four. Uh, and he says, this, he says, Jesus, are those all yours? And I said, I've heard this so much. I'm like, okay, look, dude. Yes, they're all four mine, all four of them. And Jesus is mine, too. You want him? It's like you're going to turn this thing into, like, evangelistic opportunity. Um, yeah, he just looks at you really strange. Um, I mean, it's uh, my, the, my kid's first day at school in uh, L.A. USD, and uh, first first day at school right there in the middle of Hollywood. They had two lockdowns, you know. Um, the first week, uh, my kids came home. They said, "Yeah, we had our, uh, we had a lockdown today." I was like, "What happened?" They said, "Well, there'll be no recess today because the guy was there. He had stole some stuff, and he likes to kill children." So my kid said, <laughs> "Great, all right, that's good." I mean, seriously, uh, driving around, you got to put shielders and blocks on my kids, you know, eyes. And we drive around. Remember one day I'm driving. I'm in the front of the van, which is always fun, too, driving a minivan in Hollywood. That, that gets you, escorts you a lot of points with the community. And uh, driving down, I hear my son in the back. Hey, Daddy, look, there's a girl dancing on the pole. And I'm like, oh, no, no, the turn, other way. You know, it's like, no, you can't. No, that's not good. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, I'm Sadie, my little four-year-old, you know, being observant as she is. He's like, Dad, look, there's a, driving down Hollywood Boulevard, there's a girl dressed up like a bunny. But Daddy, she's not wearing a lot of clothes. She, she inappropriate. And um, 
<laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's not good. Don't don't look at that either. It's not good. Um, anyway, so it's been it's been classic. It's been it's been enjoyable. It's been you know hard and difficult, but it's it's been a good time. You know, there's not a day that goes by that my kids don't see not one, but probably um, at least a half a dozen, if not more, homeless people every single day. And there's an element of that. It's really good. Um, my my kids have such a heart for that. They they look. They've been asking me this week, when can we take our recycling to the recycling center so we can go take the money and buy them food, and they can deliver it because they want to deliver food to them, right? Uh, so they take their money and use it for. I mean, they, there's a guy who was at a spigot that was kind of broken, and who's taking a, basically a shower at the spigot. And my uh, my son goes, Dad, we have a shower. I can't can he come over our place and take a shower? And I'm like, um, I know I'm supposed to say yes. <laughs> Um, how do I handle this, Lord? You know, so, um, you know, it's, it's great. It is good, though. My kids see it, uh, see brokenness all the time, and it's good for them. Um, good news, though, you know, we, I mean, starting the church, you know, it, it took a, it was a hard time finding a location. Uh, the problem I found in Hollywood is that either the cost per month was more than a round trip to Mars, basically, to, uh, to get there, or you had to, or you had to park a mile away, do it like walk a marathon, basically, to get to the church. Um, or you couldn't uh, basically fit SpongeBob SquarePants into a room. It was so tiny. It was just tiny, small little spot. You just wouldn't fit like 12 people in it. It was just a hard go at it. Every place I went, I got rejected. Finally found this church and opened up their door and said, hey, you can use our extra like fellowship hall. I'm like, great, we got it. Had a parking lot right there called Kaiser Sunset. I'm like, this will be perfect. And, uh, and talked to Kaiser like 850 bucks a month to park in our lot. I'm like, oh, you know. So I said, okay, well, yeah, we have to do it. We don't have any other lot. And um, I remember showing up the first day to give him the check, and the guy's like, hey, let me ask you guys something. Are you part of Scientology? Uh, I said, no, no way, no, not in any, any way, no how, I'm not part of Scientology. Different team, right, different team. And uh, he goes, good, okay, you can have the parking lot for free. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, I don't like Scientologists. So anybody who's, <laughs> anybody who's not Scientologist, you can have the parking lot for free. I mean, I don't, I don't know what his story was, but he had some bad issues with Scientology. Um, so that was good. I mean, we had that. You know, we started with about 25 people, basically, at the beginning. We've had over, a couple weeks ago, we had like 210 people on a Sunday, which was really cool. Um, we, have, uh, we have about 80 members now, which is really cool. Uh, I remember our first Sunday, I mean, it was just kind of just, just great. First Sunday, we had gang members there and actors, drug addicts, parents, homeless people, homeowners, you know, Bible teachers and false teachers, right? We had all of them together in one location. It was great. We've baptized 15 people so far. Uh, we have uh, started with two kind of Bible study, community group things. We have about nine of them going now throughout the week with about 115 people into those, actually, uh, which is really, really awesome. Um, we had uh, two uh, prodigals return, come back, who were with us, got saved, ran away, came back. It was cool. Uh, we started with um, children was this basically ours for the first year. <laughs> we had three, and then we added one, four. We grew our church that way. Uh, just add kids. And, uh, and we, you know, we have a word, now on Sunday we have at least 25 to 30 you know, Sunday morning now, which is really neat. Um, we have to actually start children's ministry now, which is good. Um, I remember just stories from his guys. I remember one of the first weeks we were there as a guy who was coming who was actually high as he came in um, and plastered at the same time and would uh, kind of sit in the back. And I don't know if he halfway understood what we were saying. But, I mean, within, you know, with a while he, he came to know Jesus and now he's a member of our church and vital guys, is really solid. Um, remember a gal was going to have an abortion, came in, came to know Jesus, kept the baby, had the baby just actually a few weeks back, which is really cool. Um, had a gal on the verge of suicide and kind of had things that she did um, was herself were just really, really bad. And, um, you know, she's now come to know Jesus and she's, you know, reading the Puritans, which is like, <laughs> wow, see this girl, re- and to see this girl reading Puritans is actually quite a sign. It's really good. Um, 
So this morning, I want to, uh, in this passage in the book of Jonah, um, I, I want to just share my heart with you on just loving the mission, loving the city that you're involved in. I want to see your heart uh, beat for that, uh, those people whom you live around in your community. Um, when we look at the book of Jonah, it's really about God seeking to bring grace to a lost city. That's what the book's about. And it's really about also the kind of religious people like Jonah who are really trying to stop it. We find out as we read the book that we, we are, as like Jonah, we are the antagonists. We are the people who would honestly don't really love the people that we're around, right? We're the antagonists. And really God is the protagonist. He's the one who's agonizing for these people. He's the one who is longing to see them come to know him. He's the one who loves the city, and we don't. In love, he sends Jonah to the city. In love, he rescues Jonah for the city, right, out of the fish. In love, he sends Jonah again to the city. In love, he grants the city faith. In love, he repents. Um, he relents from destroying the city. In love, he goes after Jonah and goes after him over and over again. In our passage, it's very clear. He goes after him. And this morning, my prayer and hope is that God will go after you. And he would seek you and get you and grab a hold of your heart like he does with Jonah. That's our, that's our prayer. So um, as we jump in here, I'm just going to look at the first thing I want to uh, look at is the hindrances to loving the mission. The hindrances. Basically, why doesn't Jonah love that people to which he has been sent to? Why does he love them? And then the personal question becomes, why don't you truly love the lost that are around you? Right? Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, in the text, what's happened, what's occurred in the book, is that Nineveh is basically sitting in dust and ashes, right? They're sitting there in remorse and repentance, even after Jonah's half-hearted attempt at presenting the gospel. I say half-hearted because basically his message was, you guys are toast in 40 days. That was his gospel presentation. There was no turn or burn. It was just burn. That was the message, right? Um, and even through that presentation, God uses that to even spark a, 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 in, in the life of these people to actually turn them and send them into repentance, right? You would think, if you read the book, it's from the very first time, you would think you get to chapter 3, verse 10, the people were repenting, um, that the story would end something like this. There would be a Jonah 3.11. If I was writing this, that may be what I put. Jonah 3.11 would say this. There's no Jonah 3.11, by the way. Jonah leaped for joy. He threw Nineveh this great party. He baptized thousands. He rode off into the sunset on his camel and in, with glee in his heart, and they all lived happily ever after. Right? That'd be a great ending to the story. Jonah, the prodigal, runs away. Guy gets a hold of him, brings him back, goes to the city. They repent. Great, great story. Let's just cut it right there. But, oh, no, there's chapter 4. <laughs> there's chapter 4. It seems that Jonah's repentance uh, is really short-lived. Um, when he was vomited out of the fish, remember, he repented and said, okay, I'll do what you told me to do. But, I mean, I think anybody really would do that, right? If you got vomited out of a fish, you'd be like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Just send me. I'll go. And he does. He does, he does what God told him to do, but his heart is this very clear here. It's not in it, is it? His heart is not in to this. He doesn't love these people. He wants them to die. <laughs> he, that's what he wants. This was deep in his heart. And see, God is not content with sheer obedience. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to obey what he says. He wants you to love him and obey what he says. Jonah here is still hoping deep inside that Nineveh would balk at the message. Uh, and God would send down fire on the city. But God, with his hair-trigger compassion, right, uh, just had mercy on them. Even when their repentance, if you'll note in the book, doesn't even involve his name. 
doesn't involve Yahweh's name. It just is, oh, we're going to die? Let's not do that. I don't want to die. Let's change something. Let's fast. Let's do something, right? I mean, even just a very small step, a baby step in the right direction, and God gives them more time. Jonah's like Wally Coyote, finds a fuse, right? Doesn't work on his prophetic bomb, and he's upset, and he's very dejected at this point. And you would think Jonah would be happy about this. I mean, his ministry was a success. There is no revival like this in human history. Um, and yet we look at Jonah and he is angry. The text says literally in the Hebrew, it says he was, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. That's what it says. It was an evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. It just any way you can describe how angry he is at this situation, right? Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, is this not what I said? This is what I said. When I was back in the country, I knew you would do this. I knew you would. <laughs> you would think he would turn and praise God for his acts of mercy, but instead Jonah complains. He basically says, come on, God. I wanted my mission to fail. I wanted to be an utter failure. right? I, but you made me succeed. Curse you for your kindness. It's basically what Jonah says. It'd be like tonight at the Oscars, someone stepping up there, right, and getting their Oscar and basically say, you know, when I showed up to the audition and I, I nailed it, I mean, I just knew, I just thought, I just knew you were going to kick me off. I mean, you should have, you, you, you were giving me the lead part and you, you, how could you do that? I wanted to fail. I wanted you to laugh at me. I wanted you to pull me off the stage, but you like me. Why do you like me? Oh, cursed you people who like me, <laughs> right? You just never would hear that. That's what Jonah is saying. God, why would you do such a thing? Um, he says, this is why I ran from you in the first place. I knew you'd do this kind of thing. <laughs> That's what Jonah says. He says, take my life from me. I don't want to live in a world with a God who is gracious and loving and compassionate like you. That's what he says. So why is Jonah angry? You know? why, is, why is he so upset? You know, to get his inner child spanked or something? Like, what, what's going on with this guy? Why is he so mad? Uh, and the bottom line is that, you know what, Jonah, and just like you, is full of pride. Just chock full of pride. There's different kinds of pride we see here, and really the pride is what has clogged the arteries of his heart where compassion and love should flow from him. Jonah has used the word I or my nine times in this passage. <laughs> nine times. I mean, this is all about Jonah. And uh, he felt that instead of needing to basically get on the, the Jesus train and do what Jesus wanted him to do, he thought he should jump on his train, right? You, you should do what I want you to do. There's different kinds of pride here going on. Number one, there's this professional pride. Uh, Jonah's identity is wrapped up in being a successful prophet, which sounds a little bit ironic, but uh, I'll show you here. You see, back in 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah had prophesied um, that he would be part of the expansion of Israel's borders and part of their military success, basically what the prophecy was. And he was sure that when he waltzed into Nineveh, that they'd surely harden their hearts and God would bring down the fire and then Israel would take over their land and you know, it would be all part of that and he would just be successful. That's what his mind was being successful. Jonah was ready to add another notch to his belt as well. But this repentance of Nineveh wounded Jonah's pride because that was what was supposed to come true. And now God was making him look bad, right? I'm supposed to be part of this expansion. And the reality is, is that this would come to play. You know, I mean, this, this repentance is not long-lived of this nation. You read the book of Nahum, you find out later that God does do what Jonah wants him to do, but not this time. Number two, there was a lot of social pride as well. Uh, Jonah, along with the rest of Israel, felt that they were the only recipients of the grace and mercy of God. 
We find this throughout the scriptures if you read them. You go to Luke 4, Jesus shows up at a synagogue, right? He's there, and uh, when he, he, he gets in the synagogue, he grabs a hold of, um, of the scroll. He reads from the, from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, about how he had come to set captives free and give sight to the blind and proclaim the good, good news of the year, favorable year of the Lord. He sits down, he gives him the scroll back, and he says, Today this is fulfilled, what? In your presence. I'm that guy, right? And you know what? The people are like kind of, this text says they're actually kind of amazed. You can go back and read, read it in Luke 4. They're kind of amazed. They're like, wow, this is, this is great. He's coming to help the poor and he's coming to do all these things. This is great. They're all for that. But then Jesus turned to them and gave them a, a, a story. He said, look, so you remember back in the day, um, there was a, a prophet named Elijah. And they're like, yeah. Remember there was only one widow actually that was taken care of. You know where that widow was from? She was from Sidon, not Israel. And he says, you remember Elisha? There was only one leper that was cleansed during that time period. And you remember where he was from? Yeah, he was from Syria. And so what what Jesus was saying was that, look, I've come here not just for you guys. I've come here for the whole world. And it was that thought, when Jesus said that, that they took him up to a cliff and tried to throw him off. Remember that? It says the text says he fled. He he basically somehow worked through their presence, right, and and fled. Um, you read in Acts 22, and Paul gives his testimony. He talks about how Jesus had met him on the road and how he had, he had blinded him and he gave him sight. And it says in the text, they were all fine with all the story that, that uh, Paul gave. But when Paul said this, he said, and Jesus told me that I'm going to get up, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And when he said that word, the text says they wanted to kill him, right? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Jonah felt that Nineveh was surely going to be one of those nations they would conquer. But Nineveh's repentance meant that they might just might regroup. They might turn against Israel. And this couldn't happen. Here's the point. Because Israel, in his mind, was better than Nineveh. We're a better nation than they are. right? Better people. And so his, his identity is not only wrapped up in being a good prophet. It's wrapped up in being a good citizen and part of a good nation. And number three, there was moral pride on his part. Jonah not only felt the loss of professional and social success, he felt the loss of moral success. None of us should be treated differently in Jonah's mind. Um, they deserve to be kindling. Jonah's identity is, hey, look, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. And he felt that God would never be on the side of wicked Nineveh. And here, lo and behold, God is on their side. How could God ever be on the side of such wicked people? This is because the heart of Jonah is still religious. And the heart of a religious person is performance. And thus, there is a great need to outperform and to do better than others in order to, on a moral basis, in order to receive kindness and grace and blessing from God. Right? So Jonah's looking at this other people going, no, no, I'm better than they are. No, God, you know I'm better than, than these people. He felt these guys didn't deserve the gift of God. He's like, look at, look at their track record, God. Look at mine. I'm definitely a better person. And yet Jonah has quickly forgotten, even in this own story, right? If we actually went back and reviewed the tape, I mean, <laughs> he was not a good guy. And, uh, and yet we look at that. He has forgotten grace, hasn't he? Second Peter one nine says it is the person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You see, Jonah, like any other religious person, is the most unhappy and angry person on the planet. Why? Because they see God showing grace to sinners when they should be the ones being blessed. And Christians, unfortunately, think this way all the time. And they look at people not in the family of God, and what? And you shake your head at them. Ah, oh, man, those people. Those, uh, how could they ever? I would never, right? You hear that in your, in your voice? I would never do such a thing like that. How could they? And yet, he, he looks at that and, and um, he looks down their nose at them, even though they might not say it in their heart, say it, say it with their lips. You think it in your heart that you're better than they are. You're better. And the thing is that you've forgotten. 
You have forgotten that you were in the same boat. You have forgotten that apart from the grace of God, that is you. You have forgotten that the, that the worst thing you can ever see done in the world by any person, the seeds of that are deep inside your very soul. And it's only the grace of God that keeps you from that. That's the reality that Jonah had to see. Jonah didn't see that. And therefore, that was clogging the arteries of his heart that would actually show compassion and love, right? They were always all there. I'm better than these people. How could you ever have compassion and love for people that you look down on as being worthless people, right? See, there's nothing wrong with morality of itself as long as it's in the right context. Moralism is dangerous without a gospel context. It's, a, it's, a da- it's damnable. And you can go from the church pew into hell in a moment. Moralism leads to violence, oppression, and abuse of power. I mean, think about it again, who killed Jesus, right? Very religious people. And as evil as Nineveh was, Jonah was just as evil, if not more. The same word is used to describe the the sin of uh, of Jonah is the same word used to describe the sin um, of Nineveh. It's the same person. He simply had the moral constraints of his culture holding him back. If Jonah had a grenade at this moment, he would have thrown it into the city and blown it up himself, right? (laughs) If he had had the ability to do it. And countless number of believers miss much of the joy of being involved in God's work because of pride and self-centeredness. So the question becomes, what about you? You know, What about you? Does, does your professional pride, the social pride, moral pride stand in the way of you loving the people around you? Do you break up people into the deserving, undeserving category, right? That person is deserving. That person is not deserving, right? They say, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really consumed with that. I mean, I'm not consumed with my career or my school or anything else that would kind of keep me from that. But do you only love those who love you? Do you only know Christians? I mean, do you know anybody who doesn't even, is not a Christian? Um, do you refer to the rest of the people and who are not a Christians as those people, right? Those people. Listen, pride will cause you to quit the mission or, or never get, get on it in the first place. You'll quit just like Jonah did. Um, and you'll quit because you'll, 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 uh, Because you'll feel better than others and that God is not doing things the way you want them to be done. That's exactly where Jonah is. But there's hope here. Not only are there hindrances and the pride that gets in the way of Jonah and way of his heart, but there's also there's, there's help. Look at verse 4. There's some help here God gives. This is good. I love that God helps Jonah love the city by going after his heart. He goes after him. In verse 4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, it's good, right? God asks questions. That's the way you want to deal with someone who's just really um, prideful, is just kind of just keep asking questions to help them reveal their own heart. That's what God is trying to do with Jonah. I mean, God could have easily responded with, Jonah, you are a knucklehead, right? Could have said that. I should have let you just drown out there in the Mediterranean. Um, you are a city-phobic, sinner-phobic, lame excuse of a prophet. He could have said that. But he didn't. He didn't. He asked questions. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve, right? Where, where are you guys? Remember that in the Genesis? God knew where they were. He just asked them, where, where are you? He asked with Cain. He says, Cain, where's your, uh, where's your brother, Cain, um, who was dead? He said to Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, Judas? These are just penetrating, right, questions. They're questions that bring conviction. That's exactly what God is doing here with Jonah. He's asking questions to bring about conviction. And God is always after you, and the Spirit is always stirring your heart and asking you questions. He wants you to love what he loves. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city on the east side, it says, and made a booth there for himself. So God's words fell on kind of deaf ears. Jonah just turns around and walks away. says, I don't care, God. 
And, he, and he's, he's, Jonah still doesn't respond to God's prodding. He quenches the spirit, he shrugs his shoulders, he turns nine degrees, slouches, drags his feet off, and goes off to the east side of the city. He makes himself a little lean-to there, a little tent, goes on a little private retreat. Now, he breaks out the sunglasses, the sunscreen, he's sitting on the edge of the mountain. The text says he was on the east side. That means, you know what, Israel actually is west of there. If he was going home, he'd have to go back through Nineveh and go back. That's not where he's going. He goes east. He sits on the mountain. He overlooks uh, Nineveh, and he's waiting for a fireworks show. That's what he's doing. Uh, he took God's statement. When God said, does it do good to be angry, Jonah, Jonah interpreted that as, Jonah, don't get angry right now, right? Don't get, I, I'll, I'll smoke them for you. Just be patient. Just wait, you righteous, you holy man, you. Just, just wait on me. I'll, I'll fulfill what you want me to do. And so Jonah interpreted that way, and so he goes to the east, sits on the mountain, and just watches, waiting for God to bring the fireworks, right, and to consume the city. And so here he is, and he's in no hurry to go home. He's prepared to sit this thing out. And rather than examining himself, as the Lord had wished him to do, he instead looked at the city and examined it to see if they were the ones who were going to change. And you know what needed to happen at this point? Jonah needed to change, right? Jonah needed to do the changing. You see, the funny thing is that, is that Jonah needed Nineveh more than Nineveh needed Jonah. He needed to be... God could have chosen many prophets. He could have tossed Jonah a long time ago and come with a new one. But no, he sticks with Jonah because he knows Jonah needs this more than even these people do um, need him. He needed that. It was a way of breaking him, a way of bringing him uh, to the end of himself. And uh, look at verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant here. This is crazy. He appointed a plant that might provide him shade. So when Jonah made a tent, it basically was this um, branches, right, over top of him. It had been a lot of, a lot of sunlight coming through. Um, it was very likely, it was partly shady. The heat where he is right now currently geographically was probably about 110 degrees at this moment, so it's pretty hot. And God notices the anger of his prophet and his son. And instead of smiting him and breaking out the divine whip, he shows him grace by making a plant grow over him to provide shade. Isn't that crazy of God? And this, is, and this is supposed to bring conviction, isn't it? Remember Romans, the kindness of God is supposed to lead you to what? Repentance, right? That was the point. God is showing grace. He's showing kindness. He's supposed to bring him to repentance. And what does Jonah do? He doesn't do that at all. God is demonstrating that he is the same God to all people. Instead of bringing conviction, Jonah gets happy. <laughs> Instead of feeling remorse and repentance, it says in the text that Jonah got happy about the plant. He missed the whole point of the plant. Um, it says in the text, literally in the Hebrew, it says, He rejoiced over the vine with a great rejoicing. Modern day interpretation, he did an Irish river dance, basically, after this plant came up. And he was just really, really excited about it. The growth of the vine actually caused Jonah to experience an emotion, get this, that's unrecorded in Scripture. You go to the Hebrew in that text, there's no other description like that of joy given in the Old Testament. Jonah, he, he wasn't as happy when, when he got swallowed by the whale and saved from being, you know, uh, drowning. He wasn't as happy. He didn't express this emotion when he got spit out of the whale and onto dry land. He didn't, definitely didn't experience this emotion or happiness when he saw the people actually repent. No, he's, he felt joy and happiness over a plant. His happiness was induced by a plant. This God is showing grace to get Jonah to end this and to repent, and Jonah's not getting it at all. And as we'll see here in this thing is that the, the plant is very symbolic for you and me, right? We value so many other things greater than what God wants us to value, as we'll see in a second. 
But sometimes God's prodding of our conscience, his questioning us by his spirit, his showing us grace, isn't enough for our thick-headedness and pride to break. Jonah needs more. At this moment, he needs more than just information transfer. Um, Jonah needs an object lesson. Jonah needs to feel something deep in his heart. And what God is going to do right now is going to take away, right? He's been blessing him and kind of showing him grace, showing him patience. He's like, okay, hardhead, you're not going to get it. I'm just going to start taking things from you, right? This is what God does with people. They'll just start taking, just start taking things away, right? And what will feel like God killing you is actually God saving you, isn't it? I experienced that when I came to the Lord. I mean, he was, I felt he was killing me. I was like so upset, so angry. But I realized later, looking back, he was saving me. He was peeling away the idols and things that I would cling to that were other than him. He is super passionate and, 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 and jealous of you and your affections for him only, right? And he'll do that. So verse 7, dawn comes up the next day, and God appoints a worm to eat the plant. <laughs> God points a worm. It had to be a big worm. It's kind of like Heimlich um, on, uh, on the bug's life. Um, and he basically says, worm, I want you to go eat that plant, and I want you to eat it like a champ, and I just want you to eat that thing all the way down to the root. Just devour that thing. And he does. eats that plant right up. So the worm consumed the plant. Sun starts scorching now on Jonah's head. And God now literally and figuratively turns the heat up, right? And Jonah is actually figuratively and literally getting hotter, all right? It says in the text that God sent a scorching east wind, right? It's um, it's a common hot east wind that would come down from the mountains of Iran. It would come down and the temperatures would rise extremely fast and the humidity would go down extremely fast as well. That's where he finds himself. And the text says he literally is, um, he, he's almost passing out. He is, he is um, staggering like a, like a ship on a storm-tossed sea is where he's at. And he, he looks to heaven. You can visualize this, right? He's just kind of shaking his fist at God. And he is boiling hot mad right now. He is upset. And at this point, no doubt, Jonah is just looking for a sharp rock or anything that can leave a puncture wound. Because if he finds one, something bad's about to happen to his own life, right? I mean, he's, he's really upset. He's really to end it. It's all over. Um, and he feels that God's just playing with him, being cruel to him, right? Giving him, taking away, giving, taking away. And yet God is not killing him. He's saving him. He's, he's bringing him. He's, strip, he's stripping the idols from his life and hoping he would repent of his pride. Verse 9. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yeah, I, I, do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> well, God sees the anger that has risen in Jonah's face, and so God speaks to him gently and compassionately, and God had every right in the world to kind of be like Wizard of Oz and just give some intimidation and just kind of some fear and cowardice in this guy and cause him to run away and do what he wants him to do. But God doesn't want that. He wants his prophet to have a heart of joy and compassion, not fear and pride. He wants him to see the mission field for what it is and the way he loves it. And so God asked Jonah if he's angry. He says, Jonah, are you, is this anger basically, is this doing you any good? And Jonah's response is, yes, this anger is really good for me. It's a new detox. It's a new thing today, right? It's, it's a lemon cleanse. You take it, it actually gets rid of all this excess, you know, compassion and love. God, matter of fact, you need to take some detox and you need to get rid of this excess love and compassion that you have within you. That, that's basically Jonah's heart. That's what he's saying to God. You've got this excess compassion, this hair trigger compassion that just needs to stop. You're just too nice. You're too kind. Um, and so Jonah is there and he is upset. Um, but God's not done with him yet. Number three, he, he provides hope. Not just help for loving the mission, he provides hope for this. This is my favorite text in all the Bible. Verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant. You did not labor for it, he says. You did not make it grow. It came into a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? God uses logic with Jonah. He argues from the lesser to the greater, kind of a parallelism here. And he compares the plant to the city of Nineveh. You need to see this. The plant and the city of Nineveh are being compared to one another. And God points to the plant. He basically tells Jonah, look, Jonah, you didn't do anything for this plant. You didn't do anything for it to make it come about. You didn't expend any energy for it. No labor, no toil, no sacrifice, no care. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't tend it. You didn't prune it. You didn't do anything for this. And yet you had compassion for this plant that was here in a day, gone in a day. God says, basically, look, Jonah, should I not have the same compassion, same exact word, pity, same word used for Jonah's compassion. Should I not have compassion like you have for that plant for these people? He says, Uh, the the work, the the people that I have created, the work of my hands, the crown of all of my creative acts, who I have nurtured and fed and provided for year after year after year after year, who will never, ever, Jonah, go out of existence. This plant was here today and gone tonight. Jonah, these people will live forever. Should I not have more compassion on them than this plant? Basically, Genesis 10 says that mentions the city of Nineveh. God had been at work on this city for thousands of years. And this is common grace had been shown to them. Matter of fact, chapter 3, verse 3, calls this city a city unto God or, or a city of God. And basically, he's saying God, God's not quick to destroy that which he has invested so much time into. God invested thousands of years, and they have taken his gifting, they've taken his image, and they've distorted it, and they've twisted it, Right? And the city is full of chaos. It's full of confusion. I mean, their moral compass has been hijacked uh, by sin and by the fall. They don't know their right hand. He says from their left. That's what he's saying. They don't even have a compass anymore. They don't know what's right or wrong anymore. They've gone so far deep, so far away from me. They don't even know what's right or wrong anymore. And I imagine this playing out something like this. I imagine God taking Jonah, kind of like Scrooge, right, uh, in Christmas Carol, taking him down through the streets. And I imagine him pointing out the people and doing something like this. He points them out and he says, Jonah, look. Look, Jonah, they're broken. They're confused. They're trying passionately with every fiber of their being to find joy and happiness in the world. And they're coming up short every single day. Every night they go to bed with a sense of hopelessness. They wake up with the vanity of life weighing on their conscience. They're stuck, Jonah. They don't know how to get out, Jonah. They don't know anything different than how they live. Jonah, look at them, he says. Look at them in their eyes. See them for who they are, he says. See the hopelessness written on their faces. Jonah, don't you see them? Do you see them, Jonah? There's so much more value. There's so much more value than that plant that you value so desperately. It only lasted a day, and these people last forever. He says, look at it, Jonah. Look at how beautiful this place is. How beautiful it is. It's teeming, he says, with people. Look at the different people. I love them. I want them to be mine. I've sent you to them, and yet you value so much more these objects. You do this too. You have so much more compassion and love for an object, right? iPod, car, home, job, whatever. We value so many things in our life. We have so much compassion and love for these things. When God says, do you not see the people who are dying and going to hell, and yet you don't care? You love your iPod more than you love them. That's what he's telling Jonah, right? That's exactly what he's telling him. And I can imagine God saying you know, to our city, look at Los Angeles. 
He says, look at Los Angeles. There is nothing more beautiful than this. The diversity and the teeming of people. Where I'm, where I'm at down in Hollywood, he's like, look at the, look at that bus heading down Vermont. You know, it's, it's like teeming, just full of people. You know, look at the red line, all the people emerging out of underneath the, the ground, you know, like a bunch of ants. He's like, look, look at the 101 freeway in rush hour. And look at all the cars just packed in there and the mass and sea of humanity. Look at all of that and see how beautiful that is. And yet, you know what we do? We look at that and we complain about it, don't we? We look at the, all the people. We, why are all these people here, right? What is wrong with us? We have a, our value system, what we see as beautiful to God and what is most, most compassionate for and loving is actually things of our life that make us comfortable and yet we don't love that which God loves, which is a mass of humanity that is lost and going to hell. Thank you. <laughs> um, God says, look, I worked on Nineveh for decades, centuries, right? I've worked on them. And God created a world of different cultures. He says in Revelation 5, he says that, look, I'm going to bring people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is my desire. And can I tell you something? Where you live right now is the most cosmopolitan city in the history of the world. Los Angeles is more, more diverse than even Rome was, historians tell us. 98% of the world lives here. 98%. Do you think God looks at that and doesn't say, that is beautiful. That is what I want. I want to see people reach there. You plant a church here, and every people group, you reach 90% of the world. How about that? Um, extremely strategic. That's why he calls it that great city that it is. Nineveh here. Now notice that God is not only concerned. I've got to mention this because it's just at the end of the text, and I'm sure you're going, why? Last verse, right? And also, much cattle. You know, you've got to look at that and go, um, you know, is... Uh, is God really into animals that much? You know, is he into, is this animal rights activism? Um, is he, is God a vegan? Like, what's going on? Um, is he promoting vegetarianism? I mean, what, what's happening? I mean, I've actually had people argue for that view from here, right? This is what God, he loves cattle. Um, and I always say, look, I love cattle too, just when it's like, you know, on the plate and hot and some A1 sauce on top. It's great. Um, no, God is speaking, you know what he's speaking about? He's speaking about their economy. Their money was not, you know, in their wallet, right? Their, their, their money was on four legs. That was their, their economy was their cattle. That's how they made money. That was their system. That was their economic system. And basically what God is saying here is saying, look, Jonah, I'm sending you there. I want those people to come and know me. And I want you to be, and I want this whole culture to be transformed, he says. I, I want these people brought in. He cares about the culture. He wants to reach the people and transform that culture. You think about where we live. We live in a city which produces what the world lives off of and feeds off of in terms of culture, right? We produce it here. This is a super strategic place to be in. So... Um, Question becomes, how, how do I get that, right? How do, I, how do I love what God loves? How do I stop valuing these stupid things that I put my treasure, my life, and my time, my talent into instead of why do I value those so much and move from, get my heart off of those things and actually have compassion for the people I see walking around me every day instead of complaining about them and arguing with them and wishing they were, weren't around anymore, right? How do I, ah, oh, it's so evil and wicked in our heart. How do we change that? Well, I, I do this every Sunday as I preach, and I, just, I have to do this. I can't help but look at Jonah 4, and I can't help but see parallels here with Jesus. Um, you know, Matthew 12, verse 41, Jesus actually told the people, look, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that's so true. And I want to show you Jesus is better and greater than Jonah. You see, in the book of Jonah, 
Jonah ran away from the city in bitterness, didn't he? Just ran away. Didn't want to go there. He got on the boat that was not Nineveh. Whatever boat was not going there, that's the one I'm on. He ran away from it in great bitterness and anger that God would even want him to go. And yet Jesus ran towards the city, it says in the Gospels, with his face set toward Jerusalem. With boldness he went. Jonah looked at the city and he got mad at the sin. Jesus looked at the city and you remember what it says in the text? He actually wept over it. Jonah sat under a tree. He cringed at the repentance of the people, calling out for justice. And Jesus hung on a tree, cried out for mercy and grace, and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah completed the mission that God had for him reluctantly. Jesus completed the mission, as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, right? Jonah about died on the mission he hated, and Jesus was murdered on the mission he loved. You see, that's the good news. That's ultimately what it's all about, <laughs> is that. You know, the Bible says that um, he made him who knew no sin, right, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous of God in him. That's what he did. He took that. Um, as we look at the gospel, it, it, and the transformation occurs as you see that, you feel that, right? You look at that and you think, ah, that's an amazing Savior, right? The more you can look at the cross and the more you can be there and see that and be changed by that, the more you're affected by that is what's going to change your heart from the inside out and cause you from the inside, not externally, cause you from the inside to have compassion and love for these people. Because when I look at the cross, I see two things. And people in my church hear me say this all the time. <laughs> um, I see two things when I look at the cross. Two things. One, I see I am more sinful than I ever, ever thought possible. Why? Because when I look at the cross, I see that God, God had to die for me. I couldn't die for my sins. You couldn't die for my sins. No one could cover them. God himself had to stoop down, come to this earth, and die for me. That speaks volumes to, to the depth of my depravity, doesn't it? And yet at the same time, the very same cross, the very same moment, I see that I am loved more than I ever imagined possible because you know what? God himself would actually do that for me. Isn't that crazy? And, and those two things come together and they marry right there at the cross. And I see that and understanding that and seeing that transforms me from the inside out because I see a Savior who lived a life I could not live ever. And he died the death that I should have died. He rescued me, saved me, pulled me out of the, the hell I was heading to and brought me to himself, right? Transformed me. And now he turns around and he says, okay, I want you to see that and I want to send you out. Okay? You look throughout the Bible, that's what God always did. He brought people in, he sent them out. He brought them in, he sent them out. Abraham, come, come to me. Okay, I want you to go be a blessing to the nations. Isaiah, come to me. He sees God in all his glory. He says, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go. Go, go to the nations and go speak to them. You see Peter in New Testament, he's in a boat. He sees the glory of Jesus and all the fish come in. He looks at Jesus, he goes, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. And Jesus says what? Peter? I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? It's like every time he brings them in, he sends them out. See that, feel that, you know, look at the cross and to those things that you so long for, you'll see the vanity of those things and let them go and value Jesus above all things. John Calvin said this. He said, look, no one will be a willing prophet and no one will be a willing teacher except he is persuaded that God is merciful. And that mercy is seen in the cross. And the more you see that and when you look at that, the more your heart is moved in compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear people. Thank you for your word. Um, 